9. Is our purpose admirably? An extremely important form of wheel and axle is that in which the two wheels are connected by belts as in figure 114. Rotation of induces rotation of, and a small forset is able to overcome a large forset. An advantage of the belt connection is that power at one place can be transmitted over a considerable distance and utilized in another place. 166. Compound Machines Out of the few simple machines mentioned in the preceding sections has developed the complex machinery of today. By a combination of screw and lever, for example, we obtain the advantage due to each device. And some compound machines have been made which combine all the various kinds of simple machines and in this way multiply their mechanical advantage manifold. A relatively simple complex machine called the crane figure 116 may be seen almost any day on the street, or wherever heavy weights are being lifted. It is clear that a force applied to turn wheel 1 causes a slower rotation of wheel 3, and a still slower rotation of wheel 4, but as 4 rotates it winds up a chain and slowly raises. A very complex machine is that seen in figure 117, 167. Measurement of work. In section 150, we learn that the amount of work done depends upon the force exerted, and the distance covered, or that force x distance. A man who raises 5 pounds a height of 5 feet does far more work than a man who raises 5 ounces a height of 5 inches, but the product of force by distance is 25 in each case. There is difficulty because we have not selected an arbitrary unit of work. The unit of work chosen and in use in practical affairs is the foot-pound and is defined as the work done when a force of one pound acts through a distance of one foot. A man who moves eight pounds through six feet does 48 foot-pounds of work, while a man who moves eight ounces one two pound through six inches one two foot does only one fourth of a foot-pound of work. 168. The power or the speed with which work is done. A man can load a wagon more quickly than a growing boy. The work done by the one is equal to the work done by the other, but the man is more powerful because the time required for a given task is very important. An engine which hoists a 50-pound weight in one second is much more powerful than a man who requires 50 seconds for the same task, hence in estimating the value of a working agent, whether animal or mechanical, we must consider not only the work done, but the speed with which it is done. The rate at which a machine is able to accomplish a unit of work is called power, and the unit of power customarily used is the horsepower. Any power which can do 550 foot-pounds of work per second is said to be one horsepower HP. This unit was chosen by James Watt, the inventor of a steam engine, when he was in need of a unit with which to compare the new source of power, the engine, with his old source of power, the horse. Although called a horsepower it is greater than the power of an average horse. An ordinary man can do one-sixth of a horsepower. The average locomotive of a railroad has more than 500 HP while the engines of an ocean liner may have as high as 70.000 HP. 169. Waste Work and Efficient Work. In our study of machines we omitted a factor which in practical cases cannot be ignored, namely, friction. No surface can be made perfectly smooth, and when a barrel rolls over an incline, or a rope passes over a pulley, or a cogwheel turns its neighbor, there is rubbing and slipping and sliding. Motion is thus hindered, and the effective value of the acting force is lessened. In order to secure the desired result it is necessary to apply a force in excess of that calculated. This extra force, which must be supplied if friction is to be counteracted, is in reality waste work. If the force required by a machine is 150 pounds, while that calculated as necessary is 100 pounds, 
The loss due to friction is 50 pounds, and the machine, instead of being thoroughly efficient, is only two-thirds efficient. Machinists make every effort to eliminate from a machine the waste due to friction, leveling and grinding to the most perfect smoothness and adjustment every part of the machine. When the machine is in use, friction may be further reduced by the use of lubricating oil. Friction can never be totally eliminated, however, and machines of even the finest construction lose by friction some of their efficiency, while poorly constructed ones lose by friction as much as one half of their efficiency. 170. Man's strength not sufficient for machines. A machine, an inert mass of metal and wood, cannot of itself do any work, but can only distribute the energy which is brought to it. Fortunately it is not necessary that this energy should be contributed by man alone, because the store of energy possessed by him is very small in comparison with the energy required to run locomotives, automobiles, sawmills, etc. Perhaps the greatest value of machines lies in the fact that they enable man to perform work by the use of energy other than his own. Figure 118 shows one way in which a horse's energy can be utilized in lifting heavy loads. Even the fleeting wind has been harnessed by man, and, as in the windmill, made to a work for him. Figure 119. One sees dotted over the country windmills large and small, and in Holland, the country of windmills. The landowner who does not possess a windmill is poor indeed. For generations running water from rivers, streams, and falls has served man by carrying his logs downstream, by turning the wheels of his mill, etc., and in our own day running water is used as an indirect source of electric lights for street and house. The energy of the falling water serving to rotate the armature of a dynamo section 310. A more constant source of energy is that available from the burning of fuel, such as coal and oil. The former is the source of energy in locomotives, the latter in most automobiles. In the following chapter will be given an account of water, wind, and fuel as machine feeders. Chapter XBII The Power Behind the Engine 171 Small boys soon learn the power of running water, swimming or rowing downstream is easy, while swimming or rowing against the current is difficult, and the swifter the water, the easier the one and the more difficult the other. The river assists or opposes us as we go with it or against it. The water of a quiet pool or of a gentle stream cannot do work. But water which is plunging over a precipice or dam, or is flowing down steep slopes, may be made to saw wood, grind our corn, light our streets, run our electric cars, etc. A waterfall, or a rapid stream, is a great asset to any community, and for this reason should be carefully guarded. Water power is as great a source of wealth as a coal bed or a gold mine. The most tremendous waterfall in our country is Niagara Falls, which every minute hurls millions of gallons of water down a 163-foot precipice. The energy possessed by such an enormous quantity of water flowing at such a tremendous speed is almost beyond everyday comprehension, and would suffice to run the engines of many cities far and near. Numerous attempts to buy from the United States the right to utilize some of this apparently wasted energy have been made by various commercial companies. It is fortunate that these negotiations have been largely fruitless, because much deviation of the water for commercial uses and the installation of machinery in the vicinity of the famous falls would greatly detract from the beauty of this world-known scene, and would rob our country of a natural beauty unequaled elsewhere. 172. Water Wheels in figure 120 the water of a small but rapid mountain stream is made to rotate a large wheel, which in turn communicates its motion through belts to a distant sawmill or grinder. 
In more level regions huge dams are built which hold back the water and keep it at a higher level than the wheel. From the dam the water is conveyed in pipes flumes to the paddle wheel which it turns. Cogwheels or belts connect the paddle wheel with the factory machinery, so that motion of the paddle wheel ensures the running of the machinery. One of the most efficient forms of water wheels is that shown in figure 121, and called the Pelton wheel. Water issues in a narrow jet similar to that of the ordinary garden hose and strikes with great force against the lower part of the wheel, thereby causing rotation of the wheel. Belts transfer this motion to the machinery of factory or mill. 173. Turbines. The most efficient form of water motor is the turbine, a strong metal wheel shaped somewhat like a pinwheel, enclosed in a heavy metal case. Water is conveyed from a reservoir or dam through a pipe penstock to the turbine case, in which is placed the heavy metal turbine wheel figure 122. The force of the water causes rotation of the turbine and of the shaft which is rigidly fastened to it. The water which flows into the turbine case causes rotation of the wheel, escapes from the case through openings and flows into the tail water. The power which a turbine can furnish depends upon the quantity of water and the height of the fall, and also upon the turbine wheel itself. One of the largest turbines known has a horsepower of about 20.000, that island it is equivalent, approximately, to 20.000 horses. 174. How much is a stream worth? The work which a stream can perform may be easily calculated. Suppose, for example, that 50.000 pounds of water fall over a 22-foot dam every second, the power of such a stream would be 1.100.000 foot-pounds per second or 2,000 HP naturally. A part of this power would be lost to use by friction within the machinery and by leakage, so that the power of a turbine run by a 2,000 HP stream would be less than that value. Of course, the horsepower to be obtained from a stream determines the size of the paddle wheel or turbine which can be run by it. It would be possible to construct a turbine so large that the stream would not suffice to turn the wheel. For this reason, the power of a stream is carefully determined before machine construction is begun, and the size of the machinery depends upon the estimates of the water power furnished by expert engineers. A rough estimate of the volume of a stream may be made by the method described below. Suppose we allow a stream of water to flow through a rectangular trough, the speed with which the water flows through the trough can be determined by noting the time required for a chip to float the length of the trough, if the trough is 10 feet long and the time required is 5 seconds, the water has a velocity of 2 feet per second, the quantity of water which flows through the trough each second depends upon the dimensions of the trough and the velocity of the water, suppose the trough is 5 feet wide and 3 feet high or has a cross-section of 15 square feet. If the velocity of the water were 1 foot per second, then 15 cubic feet of water would pass any given point each second. But since the velocity of the water is 2 feet per second, 30 cubic feet will represent the amount of water which will flow by a given point in 1 second. 175. Quantity of water furnished by a river. Drive stakes in the river at various places and note the time required for a chip to float from one stake to another. If we know the distance between the stakes and the time required for the chip to float from one stake to another, the velocity of the water can be readily determined. The width of the stream from bank to bank is easily measured, and the depth is obtained in the ordinary way by sounding. It is necessary to take a number of soundings because the bed of the river is by no means level, and soundings taken at only one level would not give an accurate estimate. If the soundings show the following depths, 30, 25, 20, 32, 28, 
the average depth could be taken as 30 25 20 30 to 28 5, or 27 feet, if, as a result of measuring, the river at a given point in its course is found to be 27 feet deep and 60 feet wide, the area of a cross section at that spot would be 1620 square feet, and if the velocity proved to be 6 feet per second, then the quantity of water passing in any one second would be 1620x6, or 9720 cubic feet. By experiment it has been found that one cubic foot of water weighs about 62.5 pounds. The weight of the water passing each second would therefore be 62.5 x 9720, or 607.500 pounds. If this quantity of water plunges over a 10 feet dam, it does 607.500 x 10, or 6.075.000 foot pounds of work per second, or 11.045 HP. Such a stream would be very valuable for the running of machinery. 176. Windmills. Those of us who have spent our vacation days in the country know that there is no ready-made water supply there as in the cities, but that as a rule the farmhouses obtain their drinking water from springs and wells. In poorer houses, water is laboriously carried in buckets from the spring or is lifted from the well by the windlass. In more prosperous houses, pumps are installed. This is an improvement over the original methods but the quantity of water consumed by the average family is so great as to make the task of pumping an arduous one. The average amount of water used per day by one person is 25 gallons. This includes water for drinking, cooking, dishwashing, bathing, laundry, for a family of five. Therefore, the daily consumption would be 125 gallons, if to this be added the water for a single horse, cow, and pig. The total amount needed will be approximately 150 gallons per day. A strong man can pump that amount from an ordinary well in about one hour. But if the well is deep, more time and strength are required. The invention of the windmill was a great boon to country folks because it eliminated from their always busy life one task in which labor and time were consumed. 177. The principle of the windmill. The toy pinwheel is a windmill in miniature. The wind strikes the sails and causes rotation, and the stronger the wind blows, the faster will the wheel rotate. In windmills, the sails are of wood or steel, instead of paper, but the principle is identical. As the wheel rotates, its motion is communicated to a mechanical device which makes use of it to raise and lower a plunger, and hence as long as the wind turns the windmill, water is raised. The water thus raised empties into a large tank, built either in the windmill tower or in the garret of the house and from the tank the water flows through pipes to the different parts of the house. On very windy days the wheel rotates rapidly, and the tank fills quickly, in order to guard against an overflow from the tank a mechanical device is installed which stops rotation of the wheel when the tank is nearly full. The supply tank is usually large enough to hold a supply of water sufficient for several days, and hence a continuous calm of a day or two does not materially affect the house flow. When once built, A windmill practically takes care of itself, except for oiling, and is an efficient and cheap domestic possession. 178. Steam as a working power. If a delicate vein is held at an opening from which steam issues, the pressure of the steam will cause rotation of the vein figure 126. And if the vein is connected with a machine, work can be obtained from the steam. When water is heated in an open vessel, the pressure of its steam is too low to be of practical value. But if on the contrary water is heated in an almost closed vessel, its steam pressure is considerable. If steam at high pressure is directed by nozzles against the blades of a wheel, 
rapid rotation of the wheel ensues just as it did in figure 121, although in this case steam pressure replaces water pressure. After the steam has spent itself in turning the turbine, it condenses into water and makes its escape through openings in an enclosing case. In figure 127 the protecting case is removed, in order that the form of the turbine and the positions of the nozzles may be visible. A single large turbine wheel may have as many as 800.000 sails or blades, and steam may pour out upon these from many nozzles. The steam turbine is very much more efficient than its forerunner, the steam engine. The installation of turbines on ocean liners has been accompanied by great increase in speed, and by an almost corresponding decrease in the cost of maintenance. 179. Steam Engines A very simple illustration of the working of a steam engine is given in figure 128. Steam under pressure enters through the opening, passes through, and presses upon the piston, as a result moves downward, and thereby induces rotation in the large wheel. As falls it drives the air in out through and the opening is not visible in the diagram. As soon as this is accomplished, a mechanical device draws up the rod, which in turn closes the opening, and thus prevents the steam from passing into the part of above. But when the rod is in such a position that is closed, on the other hand is open, and steam rushes through it into and forces up the piston. This up and down motion of the piston causes continuous rotation of the wheel. If the fire is hot, steam is formed quickly and the piston moves rapidly, if the fire is low, steam is formed slowly, and the piston moves less rapidly, the steam engine as seen on our railroad trains is very complex, and cannot be discussed here, in principle, however, it is identical with that just described, figure 129 shows a steam harvester at work on a modern farm, in both engine and turbine the real source of power is not the steam but the fuel, such as coal or oil, which converts the water into steam, 180. Gas Engines. Automobiles have been largely responsible for the gas engine. To carry coal for fuel and water for steam would be impracticable for most motor cars. Electricity is used in some cars, but the batteries are heavy, expensive, and short-lived, and are not always easily replaceable. For this reason gasoline is extensively used, and in the average automobile the source of power is the force generated by exploding gases. It was discovered some years ago that if the vapor of gasoline or naphtha was mixed with a definite quantity of air, and a light was applied to the mixture, an explosion would result. Modern science uses the force of such exploding gases for the accomplishment of work, such as running of automobiles and launches, in connection with the gasoline supply as a carburetor or sprayer, from which the cylinder figure 130 receives a fine mist of gasoline vapor and air. This mixture is ignited by an automatic electric sparking device, and the explosion of the gases drives the piston to the right. In the four-cycle type of gas engines figure 130 the kind used in automobiles the four strokes are as follows, 1. The mixture of gasoline and air enters the cylinder as the piston moves to the right, 2. The valves being closed, the mixture is compressed as the piston moves to the left, 3. The electric spark ignites the compressed mixture and drives the piston to the right, 4. The waste gas is expelled as the piston moves to the left. The exhaust valve is then closed, the inlet valve opened, and another cycle of four strokes begins. The use of gasoline in launches and automobiles is familiar to many. Not only are launches and automobiles making use of gas power, but the gasoline engine has made it possible to propel aeroplanes through the air. Chapter XVII Pumps and Their Value to Man 181 As difficult as for water to run up a hill. 
Is there anyone who has not heard this saying? And yet most of us accept as a matter of course the stream which gushes from our faucet, or give no thought to the ingenuity which devised a means of forcing water upward through pipes. Despite the fact that water flows naturally downhill, and not up, we find it available in our homes and office buildings, in some of which it ascends to the 50th floor, and we see great streams of it directed upon the tops of burning buildings by firemen in the streets below. In the country, where there are no great central pumping stations, water for the daily need must be raised from wells, and the supply of each household is dependent upon the labor and foresight of its members. The water may be brought to the surface either by laboriously raising it, bucket by bucket, or by the less arduous method of pumping. These are the only means possible, even the windmill does not eliminate the necessity for the pump, but merely replaces the energy used by man in working it. In some parts of our country we have oil beds or wells, but if this underground oil is to be of service to man, it must be brought to the surface, and this is accomplished, as in the case of water, by the use of pumps. An old tin can or a sponge may serve to bail out water from a leaking rowboat, but such a crude device would be absurd if employed on our huge vessels of war and commerce. Here a rent in the ship's side would mean inevitable loss were it not possible to rid the ship of the inflowing water by the action of strong pumps. Another and very different use to which pumps are put is seen in the compression of gases. Air is forced into the tires of bicycles and automobiles until they become sufficiently inflated to ensure comfort in riding. Some present-day systems of artificial refrigeration section 93 could not exist without the aid of compressed gases. Compressed air has played a very important role in mining, being sent into poorly ventilated mines to improve the condition of the air, and to supply to the miners the oxygen necessary for respiration. Divers and men who work underwater carry on their backs a tank of compressed air, and take from it, that will, the amount required. There are many forms of pumps and they serve widely different purposes, being essential to the operation of many industrial undertakings. In the following sections some of these forms will be studied. 182. The air is man's servant. Long before man harnessed water for turbines, or steam for engines, he made the air serve his purpose, and by means of it raised water from hidden underground depths to the surface of the earth, likewise, by means of it, he raised to his dwelling on the hillside water from the stream in the valley below. Those who live in cities where running water is always present in the home cannot realize the hardship of the days when this ready-made supply did not exist. But when man laboriously carried to his dwelling, from distant spring and stream, the water necessary for the daily need, what are the characteristics of the air which have enabled man to accomplish these feats? They are well known to us and may be briefly stated as follows. One air has weight, and one cubic foot of air, that atmospheric pressure weighs 114 ounces, to the air around us presses with a force of about 15 pounds upon every square inch of surface that it touches, 3 air is elastic, it can be compressed, as in the balloon or bicycle tire, but it expands immediately when pressure is reduced, as it expands and occupies more space, its pressure falls and it exerts less force against the matter with which it comes in contact, if, for example, 1 cubic foot of air is allowed to expand and occupy 2 cubic feet of space, the pressure which it exerts is reduced one half. When air is compressed, its pressure increases, and it exerts a greater force against the matter with which it comes in contact. If two cubic feet of air are compressed to a one cubic foot, the pressure of the compressed air is doubled. See section 89. 183. The common pump or lifting pump. Place a tube containing a close-fitting piston in a vessel of water, 
as shown in figure 132. Then raise the piston with the hand and notice that the water rises in the piston tube. The rise of water in the piston tube is similar to the raising of lemonade through a straw section 77. The atmosphere presses with a force of 15 pounds upon every square inch of water in the large vessel, and forces some of it into the space left vacant by the retreating piston. The common pump works in a similar manner. It consists of a piston or plunger which moves back and forth in an airtight cylinder, and contains an outward opening valve through which water and air can pass. From the bottom of the cylinder a tube runs down into the well or reservoir, and water from the well has access to the cylinder through another outward moving valve. In practice the tube is known as the suction pipe, and its valve as the suction valve. In order to understand the action of a pump, we will suppose that no water is in the pump, and we will pump until a stream issues from the spot. The various stages are represented diagrammatically by figure 133. In one the entire pump is empty of water but full of air at atmospheric pressure, and both valves are closed, into the plunger is being raised and is lifting the column of air that rests on it. The air and water in the inlet pipe, being thus partially relieved of downward pressure, are pushed up by the atmospheric pressure on the surface of the water in the well. When the piston moves downward as in three, the valve in the pipe closes by its own weight, and the air in the cylinder escapes through the valve in the plunger. In four the piston is again rising, repeating the process of two. In five the process of three is being repeated, but water instead of air is escaping through the valve in the plunger. In six the process of two is being repeated, but the water has reached the spout and is flowing out. After the pump is in condition six, motion of the plunger is followed by a more or less regular discharge of water through the spout, and the quantity of water which gushes forth depends upon the speed with which the piston is moved. A strong man giving quick strokes can produce a large flow, a child, on the other hand, is able to produce only a thin stream. Whoever pumps must exert sufficient force to lift the water from the surface of the well to the spout exit. For this reason the pump has received the name of lifting pump. 184. The force pump. In the common pump, water cannot not be raised higher than the spout. In many cases it is desirable to force water considerably above the pump itself. As, for instance, in the fire hose, under such circumstances a type of pump is employed which has received the name of force pump. This differs but little from the ordinary lift pump, as a reference to figure 134 will show. Here both valves are placed in the cylinder, and the piston is solid, but the principle is the same as in the lifting pump. An upward motion of the plunger allows water to enter the cylinder, and the downward motion of the plunger drives water through. Is this true for the lift pump as well? Since only the downward motion of the plunger forces water through. The discharge is intermittent and is therefore not practical for commercial purposes. In order to convert this intermittent discharge into a steady stream, an air chamber is installed near the discharge tube. As in figure 135, the water forced into the air chamber by the downward moving piston compresses the air and increases its pressure. The pressure of the confined air reacts against the water and tends to drive it out of the chamber. Hence, even when the plunger is moving upward, Water is forced through the pipe because of the pressure of the compressed air. In this way a continuous flow is secured. The height to which the water can be forced in the pipe depends upon the size and construction of the pump and upon the force with which the plunger can be moved. The larger the stream desired and the greater the height to be reached. The stronger the force needed and the more powerful the construction necessary. The force pump gets its name from the fact that the moving piston drives or forces the water through the discharge tube. 185. Irrigation and drainage. 
history shows that the lifting pump has been used by man since the 4th century before Christ, for many present-day enterprises this ancient form of pump is inconvenient and impracticable, and hence it has been replaced in many cases by more modern types, such as rotary and centrifugal pumps figure 136. In these forms, rapidly rotating wheels lift the water and drive it onward into a discharge pipe, from which it issues with great force. There is neither piston nor valve in these pumps, and the quantity of water raised and the force with which it is driven through the pipes depends solely upon the size of the wheels and the speed with which they rotate. Irrigation, or the artificial watering of land, is of the greatest importance in those parts of the world where the land is naturally too dry for farming. In the United States, approximately two-fifths of the land area is so dry as to be worthless for agricultural purposes unless artificially watered. In the West, Several large irrigating systems have been built by the federal government, and at present about 10 million acres of land have been converted from worthless farms into fields rich in crops. Many irrigating systems use centrifugal pumps to force water over long distances and to supply it in quantities sufficient for vast agricultural needs. In many regions, the success of a farm or ranch depends upon the irrigation furnished in dry seasons or upon man's ability to drive water from a region of abundance to a remote region of scarcity. Cut away to show the wheel. The draining of land is also a matter of considerable importance. Swamps and marshes which were at one time considered useless have been drained and then reclaimed and converted into good farming land. The surplus water is best removed by centrifugal pumps. Since sand and sticks which would clog the valves of an ordinary pump are passed along without difficulty by the rotating wheel. Illustration Figure 138. Rice for its growth needs periodical flooding, and irrigation often supplies the necessary water. 186. Camping. Its pleasures and its dangers. The allurement of a vacation camp in the heart of the woods is so great as to make many campers ignore the vital importance of securing a safe water supply. A river bank may be beautiful and teeming with diversions, but if the river is used as a source of drinking water, the results will almost always be fatal to some. The water can be boiled, it is true, but few campers are willing to forage for the additional wood needed for this apparently unnecessary requirement, then, too. Boiled water does not cool readily in summer, and hence is disagreeable for drinking purposes. The only safe course is to abandon the river as a source of drinking water, and if a spring cannot be found, to dry the well. In many regions, especially in the neighborhood of streams, water can be found 10 or 15 feet below the surface. Water taken from such a depth has filtered through a bed of soil, and is fairly safe for any purpose. Of course the deeper the well, the safer will be the water. With the use of such a pump as will be described, campers can, without grave danger, throw dish water, etc. on the ground somewhat remote f.